Welcome to The Sword and Trowel. The Sword and Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. I'm Graham Gundon. And we're glad to be coming to you from post-Hurricane Ian, southwest Florida, where we're still very much involved in the recovery process, looking forward to the rebuilding process. I thought you were going to say looking forward to the storm that's out the in storm the storm right now. The storm bearing down on us as we talk again now. It still is November. I guess uh, hurricanes don't take the time off until after November yeah, is what right. I hear. Yeah. But we're doing uh, fairly well. Still don't have everything working the way we would like for it to and hope that it will eventually again uh, here in the Founders Studio and Founders Building. But God's been very kind to us and so many people have reached out and helped us, uh, mm-hmm. sent money and supplies and people have come down. We got more teams, I think, that are scheduled to come uh, over the next several weeks working with folks from our church and here at Founders. And so we're grateful for that. Thank you for your prayer and uh, for your support and reaching out and just checking on us and letting us know that you are indeed praying for us. Well, we've got a lot of things coming up over the next few weeks. We've got our national conference that is uh, quickly selling out. I think we've got 230. 50 seats or so left. So if you're interested in coming to Southwest Florida in January for the conference, What is Man? with Vody Balkum and Joel Beakey, Paul Washer, and uh, Bradley Pierce and myself, then you ought to go ahead and register now because those tickets are not going to last. Yeah, best you got a couple weeks. Yeah, I would think so. And we would hate for folks that want to come to not be able to come. And uh, so take advantage of that. And in addition to the conference, we're going to have different things going on. One of the things we're going to talk about today is the fact it's been 40 years Mm -hmm. that Founders has been uh, in the making. And we're going to have a panel with Tom Nettles and Bill Askell and Fred Malone and myself just kind of uh, thinking back over those 40 years because those guys were involved in the beginning of Founders together with me and some others who are now with the Lord. And it's just fascinating to consider uh, what the Lord has done. We're also going to have a ministry update dinner. I think that's on Thursday. That's the first night of the conference, and uh, Hannah, we need to come up with a new name for that. You know, come <laughs> come to Mud, right? M U D. I don't like that. Uh, we'll figure out another name for it. It's going to be great food, and you're going to have to eat dinner anyway. And so, just come spend that time with us if you would like to. But there's places online when you get into the conference registration for you to sign up in addition for that ministry dinner. And then we got a pre-conference coming up with Vody Balkum. And it's thankfully it's not on anything controversial. Yeah. So Christian nationalism, and it's fascinating to read online. That's all we've said about it is we're going to have a pre-conference on Christian nationalism, not for it, against it, or anything. We're just using the title, and people are losing their minds. And we've yeah. said, I can't believe this. You know, you guys are going crazy, and finally we're going to get some Trumpians in place, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so it's uh, it's interesting, but I, I assure you that whatever comes out of it, it, it will be engaging and wide-ranging, and I hope useful. Mm. Uh, I, I've been trying to wrap my mind around uh, what it means and how it's used. And those are two different things. Mm-hmm. And it depends on where you're standing on a lot of the way that stuff is used. And then we've also got 40th anniversary t-shirts. I just discovered this myself uh, today, but... Uh, I just discovered it when you said it. I know, you know, they let us know kind of after the <laughs> we fact. We should have been wearing it. I know, when things are, are made. But I think they will go on sale this week. And if you order before December 15th, then they will have them to you before the conference. But uh, they will be on sale at the conference as well with some other types of um, apparel, acknowledging God's faithfulness to us over 40 years. I'm very excited about Jim Renahan's mm-hmm. new book, his commentary on the Second London Confession called To the Judicious and Impartial Reader, Baptist Symbolics, Volume 2, an exposition of the 1689 Confession. We just put it on pre-sale, and uh, you can order it on pre-sale now so that as soon as it arrives, you'll be the first one to get the hard copy. And if you order on pre-sale now, now we will send you a an electronic copy of it hey. because we are going to sell the ebook as soon as we can. It'll be up on Amazon, but they won't let you put the ebook up there until you have uh, the hard copy. And because of the hurricane, we're behind schedule on that, but we're trying to make up lost ground as fast as we can. I mm. uh, hope to have this available by the end of the year, or certainly by the conference, God willing, but you can get the electronic version of it free, which is like $20 or so. I think yeah retail if you go ahead and order the hard copy now yeah it's a great book 
It's a classic. I, I read it. Um, I took a class with Dr. Renahan on this on the Second London Confession, and it's um, if you are a particular Baptist, you need it. Yeah. You just need it. it. It's there's not anything like it, uh-uh. and it's just so useful and so enlightening. Yeah, I I love it, and he talks about reading the Confession sideways. Mm-hmm. You, know, you read it across all of its various chapters, and doing that has just opened up some insights into why certain phrases are used, why certain things are taken out of the mm. Savoy or the Westminster. So uh, I don't know anybody that is a, a better expert and teacher of the 1689 than Jim. So. Especially given its historical context. I mean, he's just read basically every primary source out there. Yeah. Regarding the 1689 Confession. That's right. That's right. So, well, today we want to talk about the fact that 40 years ago, November the 13th, 1982, there was a prayer meeting in Euless, Texas, which uh, now is part of a whole megapolis between Fort Worth and Dallas, but then was its own little uh, city outside of Dallas where seven men met and we prayed in the morning we talked through ideas in the afternoon, and out of that meeting came what today is Founders Ministries. It's yeah. incredible. It's um, so Sunday will be the fortieth anniversary. Yeah, and I read through some of the documents. I think that meeting you took minutes for that. I did for that yeah. initial meeting. I did, um, and it's interesting. The name was almost not Founders. <laughs> it was it was almost the Southern Baptist Conference on the Faith of the. Fathers. Yeah, that's Could right. Could you imagine if it were Fathers <laughs> Ministries? <laughs> yeah, so we changed it to Founders, and, th- and then it was so long. Yeah. Southern Baptist Conference on the Faith of the Founders. I mean, you know, mercifully, it got just shortened <laughs> to two Founders Conference over the next few years, I think, j- just by default. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it moved from that. But initially, that's all it was going to be, was yeah. just a conference primarily for pastors, but open to others as well. And uh, it's now, amazing. Now, this is this is ancient history, 19, <laughs> 1982. Um, this is long before my time. Were conferences invented yet? Was this the first conference that there ever was? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, right after Nicaea, we decided, you know, <laughs> we're going to do a Founders Conference. You know, there were conferences going on, conferences going on. In fact, uh, one of the, the things that was an impetus for this conference was the Banner of Truth Conference. Mm. And... Um, I'd gone for the first time with Tom Nettles and Bill Askell and Fred Malone. Of course, Ernie Reisinger, who was the key impetus behind this whole effort, was on the board of trustees for Banner. That's another Mm -hmm. fascinating story uh, about how Ernie kind of put Banner on the map here in the United States because he was up there in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He was uh, owned a construction company and was a lay preacher, helped start a church up there in Carlisle, Grace Baptist Church today, still faithfully going, and was ordering so many Banner books that they called him and said, who are you, you know, from England? And he explained it to them. So they actually opened their American headquarters in Carlisle, Pennsylvania because of Mm. that volume of books being sold uh, to Carlisle. And so that's a fascinating story. But Ernie was well-connected, obviously, with Ian Murray. He knew uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones as well. you know, John Murray, others that were just stellar stalwarts in the faith Mm -hmm. in those middle years of the 20th century. And he uh, encouraged us to go to the Banner Conference. So several of us did. Several Mm -hmm. of us who were Southern Baptists went, and it was a... You were the only Southern Baptist there. No, I was not the only one. There was about 10 of us. And you, but the, your group was the our, only group. Oh, oh yeah, 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 we were. Did you feel out of place? Well. Calvinistic Baptists. <laughs> we weren't even sure what we were, you know. I mean, we were just, <laughs> we were Christians reading the Bible saying, man, this is good, good stuff. Um, but we had a meeting one night because of Ernie's connections. They said, if you're a Southern Baptist, and there's, I don't know, 300 guys there or something. They said, and would like to meet with other Southern Baptists and go to this room. So we did, and there was maybe 15, 10 to 15 of us there. And mm-hmm. um, I remember Tony Mattia was there, and <laughs> uh, there were some others. And so we just kind of got connected. And then from Ernie's contacts, which he had been cultivating over years through his work as a pastor at that time, he had retired from his construction business and become a full-time pastor here in Florida on the East Coast. Um, he had contacts with primarily students and young pastors across the SBC, and so we used that initial mailing list to invite people to come 
to the conference in 1983, the first one, which was held at Rhodes College, uh, which I think had been, maybe even was at that time, Southwest Southwestern College. University. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so Memphis. Became Rhodes College. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's, man, that's how it began. And all in that that Saturday morning prayer meeting, Saturday afternoon, um, kind of time to talk about what we could do. So you were at this, at the banner conference. Did this meeting come directly from that engagement there at the banner conference? I mean, you were a student of Tom Nettles, right? Um, your brother, Bill also was a student, had been a student. He had actually gone and was assistant pastor at Broadmoor Baptist church in Shreveport, Louisiana, Mm -hmm. which is the position Tom Nettles left to come to teach at Southwestern. So he actually followed Tom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So how did the meeting itself get started? Who organized that? Yeah, it was um, uh, Ernie Reisinger. I mean, Ernie's the one that contacted us. And we'll go into greater detail uh, at the conference when we have the panel discussion about some of the intricacies behind the scenes. But Ernie's the one that invited whoever showed up at that Saturday morning meeting. And there were seven of us. Uh, C. Ben Mitchell was there. Ben, after one year, decided he didn't want to really... uh, go down the road with us that direction. So he, he went a new, a different way uh, in his ministry. But the rest of us hung together, and we uh, all were Southern Baptists. We had all come to believe the doctrines of grace. We were all inerrantists. And of course, 1982 is just the third year in on the whole inerrancy controversy mm-hmm. in the SBC. Adrian Rogers had been elected and then Bailey Smith had been elected after the first term was served by Rogers. He didn't serve a second term. And so there's still a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen in the SBC regarding a reaffirmation of the full authority of God's word being infallible and inerrant. And we were all inerrantists and pulling for this, working for this uh, to be recognized in the SBC again. And yet we knew that inerrancy is not enough. Mm -hmm. that at some point we're going to have to have conversations about what does the inerrant text actually say. And um, so that it it was very much like the Protestant Reformation. You know, you have the formal principle of the authority of Scripture, sola scriptura, but then you have the material principle. Okay, what does the Scripture actually teach? Well, it's justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And we knew that those conversations needed to be had. And so we said, well, we ought to get together and see how many others – uh, recognize this that would like to come to a conference. And so we did. We scheduled a conference and sent out invitations. And uh, it, it's funny, the first flyer was a kind of a heavy green paper, you know, that had the schedule on it and all. Um, and again, we'll tell this story more fully in January. But there was a seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary president, that got that schedule and, and called a high level meeting of some of his faculty and passed it out and said, what are we going to do about this? You know, so we know about that because one of the professors in the meeting was a friend <laughs> and uh, he shut the meeting down. But anyway, it's a, it's Some a things never change. That's why, you know, when these things happen, people say, oh man, you know, doesn't that nerve you? I say, are you kidding me? I've been doing this for 40 years. So, <laughs> so you guys meet together, um, that Tuesday, 1982. Um, and then you decide to have this conference at the time. I mean, there are Presbyterians who are conservative Calvinist um, mm-hmm. Christians. Um, but in terms of the Baptists, Reformed Baptists, particular Baptists, I mean, were there was there anyone else? I mean, other people that you were aware of? Yeah, there's small groups. Uh, there was at that time what was the precursor of uh, ARBCA. It was mm-hmm. the Reformed Baptist Mission Services. And I think uh, all they were doing was trying to cooperate to send missionaries. It was based out of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and uh, <clears throat> the man who was the initial kind of leader of that uh, became friends and uh, appreciated him. He, he had some hardship later that uh, caused him to leave the ministry, rightly so. Um, but anyway, there was that type of thing. So I, I knew of Reformed Baptists. I mean, certainly there was Walter Chantry, who's mm-hmm. now just recently with the Lord, uh, Al Martin, mm-hmm. who uh, was a, a strong voice, and Ernie Reisinger. Those three were kind of like the triumvirate mm-hmm. of the modern Reformed Baptist movement in America. So we knew of them. And then you had guys in England uh, like Errol Hulse mm-hmm. and Jeff Thomas, who's in Wales. Uh, you had others in South Africa that we had some good connections with as well. Or, or, or connections, not good connections. There were uh, a few guys in South America that we connected with, uh, Richard mm. Denham, who started Fiel Ministries, who uh, started out as uh, largely kind of a 
fundamentalist uh, dispensationalists and became increasingly reformed through influence of Lloyd-Jones in um, one of his disciples in South America. And uh, Rich connected with us. In fact, the Fiel Conference, he, he told me, was birthed out of his experience at the Founders Conference. Really? And Fiel is just an international yeah. ministry now. I'm grateful for that. Yeah, there are others as well. I, w- w- there was a, a nascent movement that had not yet taken root real strongly in Zambia uh, with Conrad and mm. Bewe and uh, uh, there's others whose names I've just and he also about. influenced by Banner of Truth absolutely and Martin Lloyd Jones Martin Lloyd Jones yeah it was a disciple of Lloyd Jones that came to pastor Lusaka Baptist Church mm-hmm. in Zambia and all these young uh, college students they, it's a it's a great story we ought to just have Conrad tell the story sometime but um, as they were converted one by one they were connected to Banner of Truth and so they started getting Banner of Truth literature and these students started challenging each other, you know, about what are you reading? And somebody said, oh, I just read Pink on the, this is one story he told that I remember. I just read Pink on the attributes of God, and it's so glorious. And uh, one of the other ones said, oh, yeah, if you cannot handle Sharnock, you know, it's a, Pink is okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, no, I've got to go get Sharnock, you know. And so they just challenged each other. And from that group, I, I forget now, it was like a dozen or more God called to serve mm-hmm. as uh, pastors. And, um, you know, uh, Ronald Califungua was one of those, and it's interesting, both Conrad and Ronald now have children that are also uh, serving as pastors mm-hmm. in the ministry, and so that that movement, we got connected with them, I don't know, pretty early, it was, I forget what it was, maybe eight or ten years in or so, mm-hmm. I think it was 1994, maybe mm-hmm. when I met Conrad, and so, yeah, just, but, but there weren't many, in fact, what began to happen, and I'll never forget Molly Marshall, Green, who was one of the liberal professors at Southern Seminary that needed to go and was removed mm-hmm. when Al Mohler became president at Southern, uh, she referred to us as deep water Presbyterians. <laughs> <laughs> and we had, we had conservative guys that I love today who said, you ought, there's a denomination for you. It's called Presbyterian, you know, mm-hmm. get out of here. And, um, but anyway, that, that's changed somewhat. Well, and much has happened between 1982 and today in a recovery, and, and not just because of founders. There are other <laughs> groups as well, but I think founders in large part, um, people are more aware of the historic um, confessional, particular Baptist beliefs and the fact that there really is a rich history and a rich tradition there. Mm-hmm. So you can go to the 1689 confession and you can see our principles laid out there and how we are very much not Presbyterians, but would, would heartily agree with them on the majority of their doctrine, but those important sacraments, uh, we would definitely disagree with them. on. Yeah, that's right. You know, again, back in 1982, Al Gore had not quite got the internet completed yet, you know, so I mean, he was still working on the fine points. And so you didn't have email, you know, mm-hmm. and I remember when the message boards began to open and you could go on there and, and that was fascinating. And that was one of the ways God, I think, provoked the spread of a recovery of these things. And then in seminary classrooms, uh, I got, um, I, I got out of or away from the seminary environment. I was still working on a degree when I moved to Florida. But in 1985, 86, right in there, but I had students that would call me or at that time email was more readily available. They would email me and say, man, this was said today in class. You know, one, our history professor said Charles Spurgeon was not a Calvinist. Anybody that tells you he was is just not being honest with you. And so back in those days, we had these things called fax machines. I think they still <laughs> exist. And uh, I would, you know, get printed off Spurgeon sermons and fax them to these students. And so the next day or next class, they'd show up and they would read what Spurgeon actually said, you know, and the professor, well, he may have believed it, but he never preached it, you know, and so, because <laughs> I think it's chapter 13 of the Banner edition of his autobiography is, you know, um, a defense of Calvinism, mm-hmm. so that's what I would always send, and uh, then you send them sections of sermons, you know, you'd fax them, and so they'd show up, you know, well, that's not what he meant by it, you know, it, 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 this stuff was going on. There was a conference at uh, New Orleans Seminary, a history professor there, who was a, not a bad guy. He was a good guy. I forget his name, but he contacted, no, he didn't contact me. He announced that they were going to host a conference on uh, Baptists and Calvinism because he wanted to really become kind of the, the key guy in thinking about Baptists and Calvinism. So mm-hmm. they were hosting a conference, and I called him. I found out, the, got the schedule, 
and it was during Reagan's uh, presidency, you know, and so a lot of it was, well, Calvinism exists because of Ronald Reagan, you know, people are looking for something sure, and he's so sure about everything, so theologically, this is just a mirror. I mean, it, it's it's really funny. It's funny, I mean, you change the name for Reagan and Trump, and you, you, I mean, it's, it's the same, the same stuff. It's the same <laughs> thing. No, it's, it's really funny. So uh, I called him, and I said, hey, look, man, I can't be there, but a couple of our board members will be there, and we'll be glad to send you free founder's journals. At that time, we were printing hard copies. And so we sent like 300 copies of the journals and they had the agenda of what was going to be discussed. And I forget the title of one of the section, one of the talks, but it was, it was bad, you know, like, uh, everything wrong with Calvinism, why Calvinism can't be, you can't be a Baptist Calvinist or something like that. Well, they changed that, you know, after that. And when the conference, some of our guys went and the, it was toned down from the way it really? had been. Oh yeah. Yeah. Really? And that was happening all the time. Um, you know, Roy Fish, who was one of my professors, I loved dearly. He, he was not a Calvinist. And he was very nervous about Calvinism. I took a, uh, a revival seminar with him in the Ph.D. Uh, classes. And he, he did not fully appreciate prior to that seminar just how Calvinistic Jonathan Edwards was. Mm. But there were some of us who wrote on Edwards and presented stuff by Edwards. Yeah. And, you know, and he said, well, that's fascinating, that's fascinating. Well, as Calvinism began to be a controversial thing, kind of almost like a, a, a side fire to the inerrancy debate, because mm-hmm. you had the liberals or the moderates that hated it, and you had a lot of the, the conservatives that didn't like it either, and mm-hmm. they thought it was dangerous as well. Um, so Calvinism just looked like it was going to be this big distraction or destroyer of evangelism and missions, which mm-hmm. was said more than once by yeah. guys on our side of the inerrancy debate. Uh, he started a, doing a, a talk called The C Word, and he would go across the convention and do this talk called The C Word, talking about Calvinism. And and it, some of the things he was saying just weren't quite right, mm-hmm. they weren't accurate. Well, what began to happen is whenever he would present it, and then there would be Q&A, there'd be people in the congregation said, but what about, you know, but what about <laughs> Southern Baptists have never been Calvinists? Well, what about this by R.B.C. Howell? You know, what about <laughs> W.B. Johnson when he said that? What about P.H. Mel? What about James Boyle? And it was like, you know, we yeah. don't know what to do. And the internet helped facilitate that because that kind of information that before then had been locked up in libraries and you had to go research it, you know, find it could be easily disseminated. Mm-hmm. And I think God used that to uh, provoke the spread of the reformed understanding of scriptures throughout Baptist life. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about where we are today. Uh, the Southern Baptist <laughs> convention is by no means beyond the pale to be a Calvinist. And there are, there's a not a majority, but a significant mm-hmm. minority of Southern Baptists are Calvinists. But you look at the um, Baptists more generally in America, um, and after, especially after the New Calvinist movement, Young Restless and Reformed, mm-hmm. and all that. Um, you know, I think Founders was instrumental in a lot of that. Not that Founders was ever part of that Young Restless and Reformed movement. In fact, I remember hearing conversations about you being somewhat skeptical of it in the beginning, um, and. But I don't think a lot of those things would have happened or could have happened had it not been for that early work in the early, mid, late 80s from founders and others. Well, yeah, I don't know. God will sort that out and tell the story, you know, in eternity for whatever it matters. Um, But I think we were involved. There's no doubt we were involved in it. And I've had leaders of other ministries say to me that they feel like they have built off of founders. You know, they feel like that they came and were able to do what they did far wider spread than we have had mm-hmm. uh, because of founders. And whether that's true or not, again, God knows, and that's that doesn't ultimately matter. We've just tried to be faithful, and we have produced materials from day one. I mean, that's when people would say Southern Baptists have never been Calvinists, then we would print uh, P.H. Mel's sermon that he gave to the Georgia Baptist Convention on uh, what is Calvinism. Mm-hmm. You know, we just printed it and started distributing it. You know, okay, well, yeah, there was one, but you know, there weren't that many. And then, then the debate began to shift to say, okay, it's not that we've never been Calvinists, but there's always been a Calvinist extreme, but that's just one stream. And you got the Sandy Creek stream. So you got the, the Georgia, uh, and Philadelphia stream right. that was really theological. They, you know, they sat around and, and uh, you know, one man who's now with the Lord, who was a leader in the inerrancy movement. I dearly respect him, so I'm not going to call his name. He called us the wine and cheese theologians. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you, know you sit around, drink wine, eat cheese, and you write theology. 
And uh, others would say, yeah, and these are the Sandy Creekers are out there winning people to Jesus. And so they didn't have time to write theology. And, and so you had the Sandy Creek uh, tradition and you had the Georgia and Philadelphia tradition and they merged into Southern Baptist. So, yeah, we've always had these things. And so we said, okay, well, let's, let's look at the Articles of Confession of the Sandy Creek Confession mm-hmm. of the, the Sandy Creek Association. You know, wait a minute, wait a minute. So. <laughs> It's and it's 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 wonder. I mean, it's just a it's a historical debate. Mm-hmm. It's a historical debate, and we've tried to always be ironic. In fact, if you read through those documents, mm-hmm. one of the key uh, principles that we wanted to maintain from day one was being ecumenical. Yeah, and, and not in the worst sense, but in the true sense, mm-hmm. evangelicalism. That we recognize we have Christian brothers and sisters that disagree with us mm-hmm. on some of these important doctrines. We're not going to say they're unimportant. Mm-hmm. But you can be a Christian and disagree yeah. on some of these things. And so we've, uh, I, I'll never forget, there was a, uh, a man who was prominent in SBC life who spoke at a Texas Baptist uh, conference. And he said, uh, I had relatives at this conference and they called afterwards and said, what, are you, aren't you involved with founders? And I said, oh yeah, I am involved. They said, well, this is what Dr. So-and-so said. He said, look, don't debate founders people. Said they will beat you historically every time. Said don't just don't debate them. It's true. It's true. This is in our history, you know. So uh, that historical argument was important, not because just because it's old, it's true, but because it provides opportunity to have a conversation, go back to the scriptures. And this is a point we did hammer a lot: is look, if it was true then, it's true now because truth doesn't change. Mm-hmm. So we at least ought to be willing to have a fraternal debate about this and. And uh, that didn't, you know, didn't always happen. It still doesn't always happen today, but I think it's far better today. As mm-hmm. you said, there's a significant uh, section, not just of Southern Baptists, but of evangelicals across the spectrum that would identify themselves as more or less Calvinistic. Mm-hmm. So that first conference held in Memphis, Tennessee at Rhodes College, um, 1983, 136 attendees. Yeah. Yeah, we were surprised. We didn't know that many people existed in the SBC <laughs> that would have any interest in this. What was that first conference like? Oh, man, it was exhilarating. I mean, I'm a young man, you know, so I had more energy and enthusiasm and kind of <laughs> excitement about those kinds of things than, than maybe I do now and less uh, gravitas to measure them. But I was over the moon. Most everybody was. Mm. I mean, there there was genuine fellowship. We had people we didn't know. Hearing speakers we'd never met. Uh, David Miller spoke. Uh, first time I ever heard him and just watching him preach, you know, mm-hmm. wheeled up in a wheelchair and put his hands on the pulpit and memorized the scripture, quoted it and preached without an um or an uh or a but, mm-hmm. uh, the Lordship of Christ. And it was incredible. I, I was just overwhelmed. So I was weeping, rejoicing, hated to leave, mm-hmm. hated to leave. Quite honestly, it was a wonderful time. There was no doubt we needed to try it again. Mm-hmm. And so the second conference, the decision to have another conference, because we weren't sure if we would do that, but that was made before the first conference was ever over. Mm. It was great. Um, so going on from there, how long were the conferences in Memphis? Oh, man, I don't remember. Um, <clears throat> it, it got to be difficult. to. We had them on college campuses because it was cheaper. That mm-hmm. way you could have stay in dorm rooms that weren't largely weren't used during the summer in cafeteria, you know, you could all eat in one place and just built the fellowship wonderfully well. But at some point, um, roads began to be a little bit more difficult. And then Timothy George went to become the founding Dean of Beeson Mm -hmm. school in Birmingham. And he said, Hey, why don't y'all come over here, you know, come over here. And so, uh, we did that. And, um, that was a wonderful relationship for many, many years too. We met in Reed Chapel at Sanford's campus. And then we tried to meet, in the um, chapel that was built for Beeson, the, the first year it was built, uh, we, we called it St. Timothy's, uh, <laughs> but it didn't work out acoustically. And, you know, there were a lot of icons everywhere that were a little bit disconcerting yeah. to some of our Baptist sensitivities. Yeah. So anyway, we went back to Reed and then, um, then had difficulties with Reed as well because people were nervous about Calvinism or didn't like Calvinism. And yeah. So I mean, we had things happen where conferences were scheduled that we were, canceled you know at the last minute it's really hard southern seminary did that to us actually for a college uh, conference that we had mm-hmm. and promoted it coming to it it's going to be a winter conference and like a month before three weeks before so hey you're, you can't come and so reform seminary in jackson mississippi bailed us out they let us host it there 
So those were some challenging, difficult days, but but wonderful days. Mm. So this was all before the invention of the horseless carriage. So how do people? <laughs> <laughs> so Founders does more than conferences today. Yeah. When did, where was the transition from from <laughs> conferences to the, the Theological Journal, yeah. uh, Publishing House? Um, now we have IOPT, the podcast, yeah. um, the blog, all these different things. I mean, what was the evolution from just that first conference to where we are now? Well, it, it was step by step and none of it was thought through with careful intentionality. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's like, we got to do this. We got to do this. Um, so for example, when founders started, there was a theological journal that some students at, at Southwestern seminary where I was had begun called the wicket gate. Mm. And it was really well done. Ben Mitchell was the editor of it. And I think I became a board member or contributor or something like that. Uh, somewhere down you know, within the first year or two. And that, that Wicketgate journal didn't last more than maybe three years, I think, or something. But we saw the value of mm-hmm. having a printed journal where you had good articles, historical articles you could reprint, but then then contemporary articles as well as interacting theologically with things. So somewhere, I, I have to go back and check my uh, journal, but somewhere in those early years, we thought it might be good to have a journal because Banner Truth had a journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Errol Hulse was putting out uh, the Reformation Today mm-hmm. journal that was going around the world, and we saw the value of that. And Don Whitney, we uh, asked him if he'd be willing to edit a journal for us, one issue. And he did. He's very meticulous, very careful, and so he, he put together a journal and it took a long time, and it was you know very well done, very narrow in focus. But we just saw, man, that's gonna we can't do that. That we we can't keep that pace, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, we dropped the idea for a year or two, and then I was finishing up <clears throat> my PhD in 1989. I was going to graduate. I did graduate, and I think that's when we decided we ought to try to resurrect this idea. And uh, the board met, and what in that time we didn't even call it a board; it was a committee because we wanted things to be kind of local church overseen. But there was a steering committee, and that became a board. But th- those guys uh, said, you know, yeah, Tom, we'd like for you to do this. Maybe, maybe you and Ernie jointly edit this. And uh, I don't remember all the discussions. Ernie was a great friend of mine, mentor of mine. But I remember thinking to myself, look, I, I can't do this in a joint way. But if you want me to do it, I'll do it. If you don't want me to do it, I'll help do it. But mm-hmm. I'm not going to do a joint co-editorship. And so they agreed with that. Ernie was fine with that. So he became the uh, associate editor, I think, and I became the editor of the Founders Journal. We put the first one out and did it quarterly and have continued to do it quarterly, though we moved from hard copy to electronic copy several years ago just because of cost and feasibility and distribution um, so that was that was the first thing. We also, my brother Bill, who'll be at the conference in January, God willing, he started a youth conference, so Southern Baptist Founders Youth Conference, and it would draw hundreds and hundreds, and began to meet in different places. So they would have thousands of, mm-hmm. of, of uh, high school, college students that would come to these uh, youth conferences in the summer, and that was uh, a, a wonderful thing as well. I remember reading in the Wall Street Journal. I can't remember the year now. It's probably 25, 27 years ago, a little two-inch column that announced MIT was committed to putting all of their courses online for free. And I read that, and it just it slapped me. You know? And then back then, they were talking about just putting their lecture uh, manuscripts up. Uh-huh. And I thought, man, the world has changed here. Mm-hmm. You know, doing this for free, and quickly it became audio lectures and then video lectures. So, at that point, uh, I thought we we got to do something here. We got education is going to change, and so we came up with the idea of a founder study center. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I had a, a good friend who was back in Texas, Ken Pulse, who had taught for Baylor and taught for Dallas Baptist University, and they actually had commissioned him to get trained in online. Uh, delivery and online education. So I talked to Ken and asked him if he's interested, and he was interested. Well, that was great. We didn't have any money <laughs> to pay for it. So, Tale as old as time. I know it. So uh, a friend of mine, Tony Mattia, uh, in Kansas, uh, wanted me to go to Kansas. I'm telling him about it. He said, we got you know a, a man in our church that loves to fund things like that, and he's funded some other things. So I flew out there, met with this gentleman. He was so kind, and uh, he gave us a check for $60,000 
to get the Founder Study Center off the ground. Mm. And that's what allowed us to hire Ken to bring him on staff full-time, the only full-time guy we had, only staff member we had. Um, and Ken got the Founder Study Center up and running. And it is, it's, our goal was to provide quality theological education for anybody around the world cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, that was it. And we did that. We weren't interested in trying to pursue accreditation. Didn't want to get caught you know, in that maze, but we wanted to do quality work. And so we put it together the best we could. And within two years, we had, I forget the gentleman's name, but he was a president of a seminary out in the Northwest. And he was also like the guru. He'd written the book, multiple books, on distance theological education. And he wrote us a letter after like three years or something. He said, look, I want to let you know we have two students in our seminary who have taken Founders Online Study Center courses. So we never grant credit for things like this. He said, but I've looked over what you're doing and the quality of the work that they've done and what you're requiring. You're not pretending to be something you're not. He said, we're granting them full credit for the courses they've taken. And that was just like validation. Mm -hmm. Okay, do quality work and let the other things sort out. Mm -hmm. So the Founders Study Center became an important dimension of Founders. We've, again, uh, we've sent classes around the world. I'll never forget one. We got a letter with a a $20 bill in it because I think it was $20 to register and then maybe like $30 per course or something. And it came from um, a a north-central African country. And this guy writes this letter and he says, you know, I've I've walked for several hours to an internet cafe, you know, heard about this. And so I was able to get online and and, uh, figure out the ways to register for this course I want to take. And and he says, I know that I, uh, so I'm sending this with a friend who's going to France, and he will mail it from France to you. I said, could I enlist in the course and send you the $30, you know, as I'm able to get it? Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm reading this. I'm weeping. I'm thinking, <laughs> so we write the guy back, look, you can take any course we got, you know. We yeah. just want to make it available to you. But he, and he had to travel. I forget how far, but it was hours to get to an Internet cafe wow. where he could access these courses. So – I don't know what the final count is. I know it's you know thousands of students or people that have benefited from the Founders Online Study Center. And then out of that, the Institute of Public Theology most recently mm-hmm. has developed. But I took up blogging when it was fairly early. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget, maybe 95, 94, 95. And I remember the first, I, I just labored like I was writing an article for an academic journal, you know, <laughs> for this blog post. You didn't know blogging. Yet. I had no idea. And I'm, you know, I'm struggling with it, you know, and I'm looking at it and I'm editing it. And it took me weeks. And I thought, I can't do this. I can't do this, you know. So uh, I just shelved it. And then I was at a youth camp, a founder's youth camp one time, and something happened. I can't remember what it was. And I thought, that's crazy. That's crazy. So I sat down, and I'd already set up my blog. I had an yeah. account and everything. And I just fired it up on that blog. And lo and behold, people responded to it. Was this the... Um was this the youth camp where you and Jeff had that conversation? Jeff. Jeff Wright. I don't know. Remind me. I can't even remember yeah, what you're talking about. He, t- he, t- he tells a story about how he had a, his first interaction with you at one of those youth camps. Was it he good went, or bad? It was good. Okay. Was good. And then you wrote a blog article about it. So. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't recall. I don't know. But uh, anyway, from that, yeah, blogging took off. That got us more on the uh, screen. Another thing that was happening is guys couldn't get published. You know, they couldn't get published. You call Lifeway or B and H, and you know, send a manuscript and get turned mm-hmm. down. It's turned down. Tom Nettles could get published by Baker and uh, some English publishers. So we said we got to start a press. We got to start Founders Press. So we did. We uh, the little booklet that became enlarged later, um, uh, from the Protestant Reformation to the Southern Baptist Convention was the first thing Founders ever published. What hath Geneva to do with Nashville? That's right. Yeah. yeah. The second thing we ever published was the nine marks of a healthy church. And by, that's real long. Yeah, you know, uh, by Mark Dever. And um, so anyway, anyway, but from that, Founders Press has developed into now we're publishing Jim Renahan's classic on mm-hmm. the 1689. Instant classic. Limit. That's right, instant classic. I can guarantee it before it happens. So anyway, all those things just developed, and it was, it was not like, uh, uh, certainly not 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. We had no vision of this. It was just a conference. Mm-hmm. And then from that, trying to be faithful in what God was doing 
and seen needs and saying, okay, how can we address these particular needs? Um, things have opened up, and we did regional conferences for years and um, had pastors fraternals as well. And, you know, people have talked to us about doing more than that and networks, and, you know, those things may yet happen. We've got a lot of people that are very interested in that that have identified with us. The website, oh, this is a really funny story. Stan Reeves called me, and we, we figured out the date recently, but I can't remember. I think it was 93 or something like that. Stan says, hey, I'm a professor at Auburn University. I love founders, you know, and I've been a, a, a great encouragement. You've been a great encouragement to me. No, Ernie Reisinger said, I, I, uh, I'm an engineer and said, I, I'd like to build founders a website, you know, and so, yeah, I really think it'd be good. Da, da, da. So he's talking to me. He said, would it be okay if I built founders a website? And I said, well, yeah, I think it'd be a good idea. <laughs> so we didn't have cell phones back then. You know, mm. So uh, I hung up the phone. I picked it up, started calling everybody I know. What is a website? What is a website? <laughs> <laughs> but Stan built a website. We got out on the internet early. I mean, it's there's funny stories about that too because uh, Stan, before Google, developed a search engine to search out all Baptist uh, wow. websites on the internet and called it SBC Search. <laughs> and uh, because the Southern Baptist Convention wasn't on the internet, we bought up domain names, uh, sbc.org, sbc.com. Uh, you'll notice it's sbc.net is what the SBC yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> but we own those. And we just put on there a little questionnaire. You're like, hey, what do you think Southern Baptist believed at the beginning if you go to that domain? Mm-hmm. And then we say, if you were looking for the Southern Baptist Convention, go here. So we weren't you know, trying to mislead anybody. Yeah. And we finally gave those up uh, uh at their request uh, mm. a few years ago. It's, it's, and again, that's another really funny story about how all that happened. So Founders begins really a rediscovery of the doctrines of grace uh, amongst Baptists. And so that's a that's a real emphasis early on in the ministry and continues to be throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of focus on also kind of trying to distinguish Baptists from Presbyterians and other Reformed folks as mm-hmm. well, uh, which is something that, that Founders has really emphasize, but it seems as though recently there's been another emphasis that has come along and that is public theology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You see that in the Institute of Public Theology and a lot of the other work, uh, a lot of the other books that have been written. Um, what's the reason for that new emphasis that's come along along with the other ones? Yeah, I think it's because uh, we can no longer assume what we used to assume. Yeah, it's not that we're doing anything new. It's not that we're, mm-hmm. oh goodness, this is a direction we've never thought about or in, in terms of its formality, perhaps. But the things that we are contending for in the Institute of Public Theology are things we've always contended for, but we've been able to contend for them in a way that did not necessitate us addressing basics mm-hmm. and assumptions that are no longer true. So the the Baptist <clears throat> approach, at least in my lifetime, and I, I've been guilty of this, so I've had to work through all these things to try to refine my thinking, on issues like uh, liberty of conscience and religious liberty, they work well. And if we bar, borrow Aaron Wren's uh, kind of paradigm, mm-hmm. you know, they work well in a positive world or even a neutral world. They can survive, but in a negative world, uh, you cannot. The assumptions don't exist anymore mm-hmm. because people aren't sure what a man is. Mm-hmm. We heard it at the SBC in Anaheim. We have a a credentials committee that says we're not sure what a pastor is. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't assume basics anymore. You can't assume um, the thing that even pagans would recognize to be true. A man is a man is a man and a woman is a woman and they're not the same and they can't become one another. They're distinct. I mean that up until yesterday, you know, everybody believed that. So what do you do? Well, you, you can't just talk about, manhood or womanhood you can't talk about what the role of a man is role of a woman is you, you got to talk about creation you got to talk about what humanity is mm-hmm. which means you got to talk about what god is which means you got to address things that in <clears throat> the current ethos are no longer known mm-hmm. and to do that you cannot do it in a corner you can't be content to have your little Baptist conclave over here or even your own little Protestant conclave. And I say this judiciously, but even your broader Christian conclave. I mean, you, you've got to be willing to say, no, 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 there is a God in heaven. He has created everything in the world, including you and me, and he defines what's right, wrong, good, bad, true, false. Mm-hmm. So it's Genesis 1-1. It's mm-hmm. 
because Genesis 1-1 has been forgotten or is no longer believed or is even contended against, and so many in the evangelical world have just kind of capitulated to those who deny it, who ignore it, or even contend against it, uh, we just have to raise a flag and say, nope, sorry, there is universal truth, and there is a God who has revealed it, and we must contend for him in every sphere of life. Because mm-hmm. we've, we've seen it. We, COVID, COVID made it especially uh, apparent that we have a lot of Christian leaders who think, well, the church should just stay over here in its corner, and the best you can do is lament about how bad you've been and how bad things are in the world and how uh, sad you ought to be that you live in the uh, West and Western civilization. You ought to repent mm-hmm. for the things that your great-grandfathers did, and, and, and that's it. You cannot speak to these issues any longer. And you know, a lot of us are sitting back saying, have we lost our minds? Mm-hmm. What's going on with this? And so as you begin to unpeel it and you look below, below the surface, you, you discover there are foundational truths that can no longer be assumed that must be recovered and held up to the light of day and contended for publicly. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you offend a lot of the virtue signaling Christian leaders today who want to be thought of as nice by a culture that hates God, that hates truth and that is intent on discipling our children in their paganism. And you certainly offend the people who are given to that, but it's contending for God and his truth in a context that uh, those in, in my generation uh, and above, certainly, and I would say, you know, down to maybe your generation, <clears throat> we, we didn't, we were caught off guard by it. We mm-hmm. just, you know, we, we lived through some neutral days and thought things were okay, and they're really not okay. And so if we're going to contend for God and his truth, we're going to have to do it publicly. Yeah, I think there were some vestigial um, ethical commitments and convictions in our society that have been eroding over the past perhaps generation. Mm-hmm. Christians could have assumed, like you said, many things we, that we can't assume any longer. And so there is an, what's happened in our own cultural context is there's been a it's revealed that there's a vacuum of careful thought when it comes to issues of culture, society, civilization, politics. Um, Christians haven't thought carefully about those things, and Christians need to start thinking carefully about those things because what public theology is is it's it's a contention for the lordship of Christ and love of neighbor mm-hmm. is what it is. How do we love our neighbor, Christian or not, in this world? Um, how do we organize ourselves as societies? under the Lordship of Christ? How do we uh, see the gospel go forth in this world so that Christ is seen as Lord overall? Mm-hmm. That's what public theology is. And so, you know, why would not, why would a, a ministry that's dedicated to the doctrines of grace and Baptist ecclesiology not be all about that as well? Absolutely. And it's, you know, I, I used to say, and I still say it, but I want to give a lot of qualifications now, that the best you can hope for in a fallen world is a free church, free state. You know, mm-hmm. just leave us alone. Tell the government to deliver the mail, keep the roads paved, protect the borders, leave us alone. You know, mm-hmm. that's all we're asking for is just leave us alone. And again, I can order, I can argue like that with careful nuances and qualifications, but I don't typically start with that anymore at all because you say, okay, free state, what is that? Mm-hmm. Says who? You mm-hmm. know, how do you get there? And what is that in, what is entailed in that? And again, 50 years ago, certainly 100 years ago, there was a common consensus as to the main elements of that that we've lost today. And so that idea, especially among Baptists, has been uh, bastardized in so many ways to suggest you cannot talk about the state and you must do what the state tells you to mm-hmm. do. And if Caesar says genuflect, then you genuflect because, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's not telling you to worship Satan. You know, he's just telling you to get in your corner. And if he tells you you can't meet, he tells you to mask up. He tells you to take a jab. You got to do it. You got, and I'm thinking, where, where'd that come from? Well, it came from a loss of what you just articulated. Christ is Lord mm-hmm. over the state as well as the church. And the state owes its existence to Christ and those who serve in the civil arena are servants of Christ. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they're to be pastors or priests. It doesn't mean that we expect for them to uh, guard the doctrine of the church. I have some differences with some of my friends uh, who see these things on that particular point, but it does mean that they are accountable to carry out their role as civil magistrates 
in the way that God has prescribed for them to do. Mm-hmm. And when they don't do that, the people who know God are the ones who are responsible to tell them, uh, you, you, you cannot have your brother's wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you must stop. You're mm-hmm. on a wrong path here, and you must not go down that road. Well, you know, I'm excited for the opportunities that Founders has and has had. I mean, coming into this um, this need within Baptists, but in American evangelicalism, um, on a whole, the need to recover the doctrines of grace, uh, the need to defend Baptist principles. All you know, Founders was there when it when it was being recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and now Founders is here to be able to defend these ideas and, and help the church to think about these things uh, at, at precisely the right time. And so you think about the history of Founders, where Founders is now, where Founders is, is going. Um, I'm grateful the Lord has equipped, you know, it's like Gideon and his 300 soldiers, you know, mm. small beginnings. And, mm-hmm. and But the Lord is able to do a lot with a little. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And it is a testimony to God's faithfulness. His kindness, his provision, and I'm excited. I'm I'm as excited about the future of founders and as I have ever been. Uh, and there's a lot of history. You know, we've mm-hmm. seen a lot of good things happen over time. But the Institute of Public Theology may well wind up being the most significant thing that we've ever attempted mm-hmm. as founders. And uh, let me just mention too, we've got some donors that are matching gifts to IOPT. And if you are interested in this at all, I'd love to talk to you more about it. But you can go to the Institute of Public Theology and find out all that you need to find out there. You can get to it from the Founders website as well. And if the Lord has provided for you to be able to contribute to this sending missionaries into the future, uh, we would welcome that. And all the gifts that you give will be doubled to help students and help pastors, help churches, uh, literally from around the world. Uh, we, we have pastors that have come in from different places across the United States and others that have tuned in uh, from different places beyond to take advantage of courses being taught by Mark Coppinger and uh, Vody Balkum, Tom Nettles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got Carl Truman coming in in the summer. Um, Jim Renahan is going to teach symbolics oh, for great. us. Uh, we, we just, uh, Conrad and Bayway teaching mm-hmm. preaching. I mean, it's just there, there's an assembly of faculty that is second to none that God has done. Mm-hmm. And we uh, would welcome your partnership in that. If you want more information, let me know. Well, it's been a fun conversation. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a preface to what we'll be doing in January at the Founders Conference whenever we talk uh, to those guys that were a part of that beginning of this ministry. November 13th, 40 years. And mm-hmm. it's 40 years of God's faithfulness. And we certainly praise him for what he's done. Thanks for listening to us today. If we can be of any help to you uh, as a ministry, help you in your church or in your uh, walk with the Lord, please contact us. It'd be our joy to try to do so. We look forward to having you tune in again in the next Sword and Trial.